0: Cinema Boys to men Episode Four Four. Uh, hope you're well, mm. wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Uh, this week we are going to be chatting on, chatting on, chatting Babi- on, chatting on Babylon. <laughs> that doesn't work. It doesn't <laughs> work. <laughs> well, I mean, it sort of works. Uh, we're going to be keeping it in. Yeah, we're going to keep it in. Yeah. We're going to be chatting about Babylon. Yeah. Damon Chazelle's exploration of the hedonism and excess of the 1920s, mm. more specifically the film genre, its birth, the craziness that kept it alive, Mm. and its struggle to transition to the era of talkies in the early 1930s onwards. We will also be talking about some of our favourite LA films. Yes. Uh, Some examples of self-reflective Hollywood, which is a very common trend. Yeah. And then, of course, the film itself, which um, is pretty broad. Yeah. It's a pretty broad film, and there's lots of things... I don't know about you, Ben, but I feel a little bit uncertain about. Yeah. It some, was a, I, some I like, some I... I'm not sure.
1: It was a it was a big kind of collage of ideas. And uh, yes, agreed. It, yeah. I will we'll get into it more in the actual discussion, but, I mean, yeah, first thoughts is it's just
0: scattershot, basically. It is. And that means we're going to have a discussion that's going to go off in lots of interesting tangents and about lots of great films. So, uh, it's fair to say it's going to be pretty meaty. Meaty. So, uh Settle down and tuck in. Questing so, then, as we said before, lots of things to get through, lots of subjects to talk about as mm. this film is very broad, as we mentioned earlier. Yeah. It seems fitting, though, to talk more about the location into which the film is set yep. LA. Los, place, Angeles. Los, Angeles. <laughs> Los Angeles. Los Angeles. Angeles. <laughs> uh, Los Angeles. Los Angeles. Los Angeles. A place that is all too often the setting of many sort of self-reflective pieces on Hollywood. Mm. Um, I find the LA film is often an exploration of the dissonance between assumption and reality. Okay. Mm. In the sense that Hollywood, we expect it to be this sort of dreamlike place of creativity. Yeah. Um, and joy. The joy that comes with the creativity and that everyone involved in these films is going to be skipping around happy and uh, wealthy know, wealthy yeah. always counting their lucky stars that yeah, are there yeah? yeah, forever young yes <laughs> but it's often of course not the case yeah. and a lot of these films yeah. juxtapose that assumption with the harsh reality the darkness the seedy underbelly and the excess that often comes with a life of isolation and i think there are many films that do this brilliantly and I believe you wanted to introduce the first filmmaker who's done this, perhaps better than anyone else, certainly in more modern times. David Lynch. Yes. Um, specifically,
1: I mean, most notably, Mulholland Drive, I think. Yeah, is I, think, his, I think that's yeah, fair. It's the definitive L.A. movie, really. Yeah. And it touches on, in quite a quite a sort of obvious way, the what you were talking about just then, which is, you know, the, the glitz and the glamour and the kind of hope that uh, a city like this could afford, especially... You know, towards a young actress, and then the dark, grimy, seedy under underbelly of the city kind of rears its ugly head. It's the It's quite a it's kind of for Lynch anyway. It's sort of a quite a classic narrative trope for him to explore. Mm. Um, love that. I love Marlon Drive. I think it's really, really quite striking, unusual, frightening. Mm. In and it kind of happens in quite unexpected places, so you yeah. you never really know. You're never sitting comfortably when you're watching it, which is a really nice way to illustrate what the you know the opinion that a lot of directors I'm sure have about Los Angeles.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think um, I mean I had the pleasure. Well, the last time I saw it, sorry, I had the pleasure of seeing it on the cinema screen, ah. which was an amazing experience. I mean, obviously, any film is ten times more potent on a cinema screen, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I don't know why specifically 10 times. (laughs) Possibly (laughs) more times. Probably more times. Um, But yeah, it it just enhances all of the qualities of the film. One thing that really strikes me, and I really like that point you say about the sort of hopes and dreams of people that go there. Yeah, It's this place where people are so sort of either fascinated or sort of enraptured by this idea of, of it being this place where dreams come true. Yeah, yeah. And I think that really sort of ties in well, not only to the darker aspects of Mulholland Drive, but also Lynch's approach to the film itself in terms of narrative, because it feels like it starts off in a somewhat linear fashion. Yeah. Linear for Lynch, anyway. Oh, my, yeah. Um, And then it sort of slowly descends more into this sort of dreamy sort of nightmare hellscape. Yeah. And that speaks quite a lot, I think, to the idea of of unmasking that dream and masking what achieving that really actually means and what mm. that entails what you have to sacrifice personally socially even physically to attain that dream
1: yeah i um i, I just sort of thinking about it now i remember the beginning like the first 20 minutes uh, naomi, naomi what's his character who is an aspiring actress just moved to the city yeah she literally sounds like she's trying to imitate like one of those kind of classical Hollywood actresses like yeah. in the way she speaks she's everything's so oh my god just bubbling you know? with optimism yeah, yeah yeah to the point where she is she's kind of putting It's put. she's putting it on because later on in the film that, that all fucking goes away yeah the facade really crumbles quickly <laughs> it's putting it
0: mildly yeah
1: but I mean that's very Lynchy. it's sort of almost you know a bit like Twin Peaks Is soap opera he's doing it almost in the style of a soap opera it was meant to be a TV show originally Mulholland Drive oh really I didn't know yeah, that yeah yeah okay. but um it's just so like it's funny for a, for a filmmaker who's renowned for keeping his cars close to his chest. It's so obvious what he's trying to say with Mulholland yeah. Drive because yeah, it's yeah. so like there's a definite sort of linearity to to that film as abstract as it can get. Yeah, the central weird. message is like right there. Yeah, <laughs> Los absolutely. Angeles is not
0: the kind of city. you... It's kind of brutal and uncompromising. That's sort of what he's trying to say. Agreed. Yeah, I think what he does really so brilliantly in, a, and I think this is probably something that isn't sort of acknowledged enough. There's a, a sort of a mastery of melodrama here in his yeah. in, in in the film, and I think when you mention that opening she's coming up an escalator isn't she and she's yeah. talking to the elderly couple and on yes. the elderly couple she's met on the on the on the flight in yeah yeah that's the right the camera is like everything's really sort of bright and almost yeah. to the point of like sort of being there's a bloom piercing yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah um awful. and uh yeah i think that sort of melodramatic element that he harnesses so well it sort of reminds me of filmmakers like douglas sirk who would use the melodrama to sort of poke holes at american suburbia yeah yeah. poke holes ideas of the american dream and american identity and and lynch is doing this here to poke holes in the in in the the american dream or indeed a wider dream the dream of success yeah the dream of being part of this landscape that fulfills the wildest dreams of not just the people that take part in the films allegedly or at Mm, least the idea it wants to present (laughs) you know to the consumer and of course the dreams of the consumer themselves or themselves yeah definitely so another film, then. I mean, this is something that you actually mentioned earlier, and I'm stealing. Uh, is uh, Maps to the Stars by Cronenberg? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Obviously, there's some thematic similarities between this and Mulholland Drive in the sense that it's a sort of exploration of the darker aspects mm. of Hollywood, the unseen aspects of Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, but this, I think, doubles down on that, and there is a linearity here. Yeah. And there is a sort of there's no. There is something. I mean, surreal is, is is a word that is banded around. any film that's like slightly hazy in its narrative is just labelled immediately surreal. <laughs> yeah. But there is something about the surreal nature of this film and how disconnected from the from humanity these people are that have achieved that success. Yeah. It's almost like getting success means you have like to take an ice cream scoop to your soul and your being. Yeah. And then once you have done that, you spend or they spend as a lot of time and money trying to get it back yeah and they don't realize that the landscape itself, the individuals that they share this space with are part of the reason why they've become the way they are
1: uh, okay. I remember the only thing that I really remember in great detail about that film is the uh, the child actor, his story, oh yeah, yeah he's like yeah. twelve, and somehow, even though he's like ridiculously successful, he's already been addicted to drugs and he is now recovering, yeah from yeah that. yeah affliction already it's like what yeah he's 12 he's like 12 years old um and uh i mean maps to the stars is kind of chock full of those the la people
0: right the, the, yeah the, the movie but it's yeah the, the movie the it, movie it, type it's the closest thing i could think of in terms sort of achieving that that brett easton ellis sort of critique of yeah LA. i mean a lot of his books center on that you know and i think the idea of just how just nothing meaningful is said between anybody yeah, there's no sort of nothing real to grab hold of. It's all just posturing and mm. and and uh, meetings, meetings, just yeah, filled with meetings. That yeah. film
1: just like auditions and meetings and people going to fancy restaurants and coffee shops and just talking about their careers. If, yeah, and like that that boy's parents as well, kind of basically living off his sort of fortune.
0: Yeah, effectively. Yeah, yeah. Julian Laws, Julian Law... Jude Law Jude, Jude Law. Law the star Jude of Maps the Stars <laughs> yeah. Julianne Moore's performance in the film is unbelievably good I remember mm. there was some scenes of her just doing yoga breaking into tears and just oh, crying yeah. like hysterically yeah and it, I don't know that just sort of it's pretty sort of overt but it really does achieve the messages of the film really really rather well yeah because it is something that I think is almost sort of like I guess like a microcosm of the wider obsession with fame Mm. In our society and the way in which we chase it, yeah, and how potentially dangerous and sickening that can be. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with having aspirations to be a musician or or an artist of any kind, but I mean, if you're if you get to this point where you are sacrificing everything else in pursuit of that dream, that's when it starts to become dangerous. Yeah, I I assume. (laughs) Oh, god, yeah, I mean. I'll I mean you are sat, you are listening to two wannabe filmmakers yeah. here who've sort of just sacked it off and decided to sit and talk in my, to microphones <laughs> instead and have never been to Los Angeles yeah right yeah, yeah yeah. exactly yeah. yeah I mean there are literally toddlers that are better travelled than I am and yet here I am talking about but <laughs> well, I mean we. I feel like we sort of have been there because of the
1: movies we've watched maybe yeah. ever so slightly i mean i've never apparently i've some people from work went there and they said it was shit they oh, really <laughs> yeah they really didn't like it i thought it was really like i mean they get painted a picture and then obviously go to the actual location and it's just there's no like public transport uh, the wealth inequality
0: is like in your face okay and
1: pretty dreadful
0: and it's, yeah. it's also i mean i i sort of get the impression again from the media that i've consumed but a lot of it just seems to be like you say success and then failure yeah and there are so many people that are just sort of clinging on to the last vestiges of a dying dream in like coffee shops and yeah or even in worse situations where they've succumbed to vices as as a way of coping with failure yeah i mean these are extreme examples and there's also nothing wrong with working in a coffee shop
1: oh no no however but you know
0: the idea is is that you know
1: you were aspiring aspiring to be earning yeah. what, 3 million a year kind of thing and you're ending you've ended up basically the same as if you stayed in i don't know north carolina or something. yeah 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 skegness yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah working working at the butlins um uh i would
0: say there's nothing wrong with working in butlins but there definitely is yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> for our loyal uh butlins employees listeners i do apologize um <laughs> So, a, a film I wanted to briefly touch on, which I haven't actually seen, uh, Under the Silver Lake.
0: Okay. Uh, just Nor be- have I This is going to be insightful. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, it's just, I
1: just find it interesting that directors, uh, a lot of their sophomore efforts happen to be set in Los Angeles. I think it's because they've moved there and ha- all of a sudden have something to say about the city. Yeah, so yeah. So, they, they, the screenplays they subsequently write after making it big with their first film, in this case, David Robert Mitchell... Um, uh, he directed It Follows excellent fantastic film yeah. clearly moved to Los Angeles and then made Under the Silver Lake which is <laughs> kind of I mean by I've, from the looks of the trailer it looks like a bit of a Mulholland Drive rip off
0: <laughs> yeah a lot yeah. of people have said that that's actually what put me off and I uh, and I sort of hate being that person to be put off by mm. you know general opinion that you that you read but I mean that was the case yeah so you were going to then suggest someone else weren't you someone else who did something similar yes uh, Richard Kelly. yeah, South, Southland Tales. So we both have seen this one. Yeah, we can talk yeah. about this I one. I
1: fucking love this film. I do. Yeah. Oh, cool. uh, nobody's nobody's seen it either. I swear to god. I try and I try and
0: get people to borrow it. Yeah. But either they don't have a Blu-ray player or are straight up just not interested. <laughs> yeah. I mean it is yeah. I mean it's comparable in a way to uh to Babylon in the sense that this is a far-reaching assessment of a period of time. Yeah, definitely. And it's clearly a filmmaker that is perhaps too confident, obviously, he was riding high after the success of Donnie Darko. Yeah. The studio fucking gives him loads of money, yeah. And he's like, Right, I'm gonna take the sort of the, the early naughties to task, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and in a way, I don't know if this is more sort of laced in sort of nostalgia, mm. um, in a way that I can't be for, for Babylon, um, for yeah. obvious reasons, mm. um, but I really like his effort to do that. I mean, some of it is shit. Yeah. Some of it is great. Yeah, it's unfinished. Some of, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Some of it's middling, but so yeah. many elements of that film are quite poor. Yeah. And yet I find myself, I mean, when I first saw it, because I remember you and one of our dear friends, Lee, would, all, would always talk to me about that. And he'd always mention it at least once when we were yeah. talking about films. And I was <laughs> thinking, I remember think being told a lot of that film shit. <laughs> yeah. And then everyone keeps telling you guys kept, obviously, you know, yeah. I trust you guys' opinion. <laughs> so I, I watched it and I was just blown away by yeah. the sort of, Thematic vastness of it and some Mm. of the the casting choices and how deliberate that sort of feels and tying into this sort of critique of the growing rapidity and horror of the modern world. Yeah.
1: Yeah, they would, I think they were just bizarre but totally deliberate. Yeah. Uh, Going back to what you were saying about him getting given like a lot of money to do whatever the fuck he wanted. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, he apparently cast uh, a lot of actors and actresses that he thought uh, had. Hidden talent,
0: like Sean William Scott, Sarah he, Michelle Gellar. <laughs> I mean, these are great. I mean, yeah, absolutely. And I, I was going to say beforehand in the sort of opening spiel about the film, Sean William Scott is good in this film. He, he's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like he clearly it. has acting chops. He's obviously someone that's been completely typecast forever now. I mean, Stifler yeah. was both a blessing and a curse for him, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. he's never going to break that mould. No, he's um, not. Oh, but yeah. he's clearly capable, and right. he shows that in this film. I, I would love to see him
1: in more stuff, actually. Yeah. Um, This film has, I think, one of the best taglines of any film ever, because it sums up the entire... What I feel is it's open to interpretation, Southland Tales, because it's bonkers. Yeah. But uh, the film's tagline is, um, this is the way the world ends, not with a whimper, with a bang. And I just love that. It's actually... It's a quote from an old book or something, but um, that's what I think the film's about. I think it's Richard Kelly, his move to L.A., realised how bizarre and just outside of normalcy it is mm. and decided to make a film about that yeah and he I genuinely think he thinks the way the world is gonna end is going to start with Los Angeles <laughs> um, <laughs> it's the
0: sort of yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah the dawn of the end starts in LA yeah <laughs> I like I, I like that and I also mm. what I want to say about the film in regards to its similarities with Babylon is that structurally or the sort of execution of some of these sort of critiques or some of this exploration of mm. the sort of of the time I mean it really borders on sort of pastiche doesn't it yeah and it's clearly sort of trying to ape you know um, certain scenes of other films that have just done that better Yeah, but for some reason unlike Babylon and we'll go into that a little bit later why it was a bit of an issue for me in this film I I forgive it and I don't know why that is I think it's just because I was completely prepared to settle into this river being like what the fuck is going on yeah and that somehow allowing me to sort of forgive the film yeah all.
1: it's one of those films where i genuinely enjoy look every time i watch it i'll look it up and read about it for hours afterwards yeah. so just like you know it's been given to its or its audience yeah and there's some really wild and really interesting theories about what it means <laughs> yeah um and you can kind of have your own and you can feel valid in in that opinion yeah whereas babylon isn't really like that it's kind of it's not spoon-fed to you but it is it's a lot less abstract in that regard
0: yes agreed
1: Mm. but there is there's a lot of similarities as well uh i mean down to the way it's structured it follows a a fair few
0: different strands yeah yeah and they don't always coalesce necessarily but no yeah no i agree so another film I'd like to mention just briefly because it doesn't really tie into anything in terms of the themes of any of the films we've just, just discussed and their relationship to Babylon. But Predator 2 is set in LA. Ooh. I, just, I just Googled that before because I, <laughs> I thought there's got to be a couple more that I want to talk about on Predator 2. Okay, Criminally, criminally overlooked. Okay. And often maligned as a poor sequel. And yeah. I just think that's utter rubbish. I think it's great. And I think actually... The film itself, structurally, is better. Okay, than the first Predator. Yeah. I think I love the Predator films. I'm completely down with what they're trying to do. Uh, I would say that Predator One is made by someone that's got more competence in action cinema. Totally. Yeah. But where Predator Two shines is in its execution of that sort of 80s excess. Yeah. The obsession with violence. Yeah, and all of these things that, of course, people like Verhoeven did better. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's there and it's present, and I think the film is overlooked a lot.
1: Okay, I need to rewatch Predator Two. I do remember watching it with the right frame of mind and being pleasantly surprised. Yeah, because I was told by a lot of people that it was shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, it, it came, I came as a box set. So as I watch the first, I've got to just yeah, yeah, watch of course. it so, yeah, it, so yeah. it's done and I can put it on my shelf and not think about it again. But I've remember seeing it a few times.
0: It's really good fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it has nothing to do with, with any do of the, the themes we're discussing, but I'm yeah. throwing it in there because I like the film. I and, do. And uh, if you disagree, you're wrong. You're wrong, wrong. Yeah. and a grotesquely ugly freak. <laughs> nice.
1: Um, I did want to briefly touch on films like Hail Caesar which relate a lot to mm, yeah. um, Babylon I think yeah. in that just in terms of how it portrays the film industry. Uh, Hail Caesar's a lot better than Babylon I think. I've only seen it the once but I remember really enjoying
0: it. Um, yeah I like Hail Caesar. Mm. Michael Bay didn't. Did you know <laughs> no uh, I didn't. M- Michael Bay Invited some of his friends round to watch it in his <laughs> private cinema at home, and he was He started watching it, and he I think he got something ridiculous like twenty minutes in, and he turned it off and apologized to his mates for inviting them over. <laughs> no way. Yeah, Michael <laughs> no Bay. Hell, Caesar was a load of shit. Oh my god, not enough robots in it. No, not, not enough robots or police chasers or whatever. Oh, that's so weird. That is I... strange, isn't it? Because it isn't. It's not the kind of film that was sort of divided people in that way i think he comes from that school of filmmaking where it is about the experience in terms of spectacle mm. so any film yeah. that doesn't match with that is perhaps to him not as enjoyable okay i mean i'm, I'm speaking on behalf of his tastes. So i have no idea but given on the film given the films he makes yeah. I, that's the assumption i would make fair enough but anyway carry on that's just, this, is a, this is a sort of pretty pointless aside but I'm no gonna, I'm no mentioning it. that is
1: that's that's fascinating um Yeah, I mean, it it just, it ties into what Babylon was trying to do a lot, although it has that kind of Cohen esque humour that uh, just kind of turns the whole thing into a bit of a farce. Yeah. Uh, And you've got George Clooney and he's with his his sort of, he's been kidnapped and there's that that sort of Stockholm syndrome. Mm. It's got all that going on as well, but um, it's just got a lot of scenes in it that are on new Hollywood movie sets. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it just it just it just reminded me of Babylon a little bit. When I was watching it, I remember thinking this film was a hell of a lot of like Hell Caesar and Boogie Nights.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah agreed. Very um, much so. To its detriment, you probably. Yeah,
1: I, I'd say. Yeah, I say that. Um, did you want to talk a little bit about um, Once Upon
0: a Time in Hollywood? Oh yes, definitely. I yeah. mean, that seems to be. I think I remember. Uh, reading a review on Letterboxd <laughs> <laughs> and you were saying about how the performances in Babylon uh, feel like they've been lifted from other films yeah uh, I would say both of the performances in the film certainly the more famous performers in the film yeah uh, Brad Pitt Margaret Robbie. you could see a lot of parallels between both of their characters yeah. but they're sort of ramped up to 11 for Chazelle here in a mm. way that I think suits the, the tone that he's going for but perhaps doesn't really serve the film Overall.
1: No, I find it a bit distracting. I remember thinking uh their performances were just almost to the letter exactly the same. Yeah. As Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Which on reflection, I think it's definitely one of Tarantino's better efforts. Yeah. As a sort of love letter to Hollywood it worked. Yeah. Um and it didn't it wasn't like kind of showering Hollywood with love to the extent where it was overbearing mm. uh, and it has a kind of sinister side to it with the sort of the whole thing with Sharon Tate in the mm. Manson mur- uh, the Manson murders and it just sort of although it was similarly sort of scattershot and there was a lot going on a lot of different characters to follow it did um, kind of sharpen it to a nice fine point I agree I think, yeah. I
0: think Tarantino is just good at writing that sort of vignette style yeah a story where you've got different characters and he, he, you know, he'll pick them up, drop them, move on to the next character, and come back round to them, yeah. and eventually their stories tend to sort of merge at some point. Yeah, I think it's more of an exercise in sort of enveloping you in the atmosphere of the time, the feel of the time. Yeah, and there's clear reverence from there from Tarantino, just as much as there is reverence from Chazelle in Babylon. Yeah, and I admire both of them for that. Mm. Um, but I think. Tarantino is just a bit more assured in that. Yeah, I mean, and he's I had a longer career. He has, and I also think he's not as... I think Chazelle is very... I mean, we're going to talk about this <laughs> a bit later on, but I find Chazelle's dynamic approach to camera use quite distracting mm. in the sense that it almost sort of says look at this look at this you know look how yeah. whoa you know like and it's like we had yeah. a crane yeah <laughs> a big, big crane <laughs> look how this ties into how much i love this stuff and yeah. i think yeah fi- fair enough mm. but there's a control in once more time in hollywood i think um yeah that serves the film better and serves the intention better of you know taking us back to a period that period in history yeah. a period that he clearly loves and you know many people do as well as, as a sort of Hugely significant moment in film film history. Yeah. Okay. Um, we also have Nightcrawler. Yeah. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal,
1: uh, directed by Dan Gilroy, who went on to do another LA movie called Velvet Buzzsaw. Polar opposites in terms of actual films, mm-hmm. um, but Nightcrawler touches on, I say, to the extreme, the sort of darker side of Los Angeles. Yeah. Very kind of crime-ridden. It looks a little bit like Sin City. Yeah. You know what I mean, yeah, it's just. It's yeah. just damp, dark, always dark kind mm. of uh, soulless yeah. industrial landscape. Yeah. And it centres on someone who, he, he, whereas in films like sort of Mulholland Drive and, and Babylon, the obsession is kind of a positive one, right? Mm. So the aspirations that they have are just, just fame and fortune, but with Nightcrawler it's Something a lot more sort of nuanced and sinister, and I just yeah I think as a Los Angeles, as a film set in Los Angeles, I should say it, it reminds me of Collateral a little bit. It's another good LA movie. Oh, what a <laughs> film that is! Yeah, what a um, great film that is. You kind of you kind of have to mention those sort of uh, dark, dank, crime-ridden landscape that a lot of directors seem to seem to kind of lean towards. Sometimes. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I think in the case of Nightcrawler, I mean. You know, it is like you say the the furthest reaches of that that sort of exploration. In, in terms of this guy's, you know, he he wants to be top of his game, but in in a pretty grim field. Yeah, right? and it's, yeah, it's funny. Like he he sort of wants the same
1: thing as like Margot Robbie's character in Babylon. He wants to be noticed, and he wants the attention to be on him. Yeah, but it's presented in such a drastically different fashion. Uh, and it kind of reveals the way he manipulates people and the way he kind of has... It is sort of selfish to the point of being a bit of a sociopath. Yeah, completely. And yeah, the aspirations are the same.
0: I just thought it was just kind of interesting. Oh, yeah, I agree. And I think it sort of says something more about the wider cultural mm. uh, issue of, of wanting to record those things. You know, yeah. so his job is to go and record, like, tragedy, car crashes, yeah. you know, horror yeah, <laughs> You know, basically, day-to-day yeah. horror, Yeah, you know, that, that befalls very unfortunate people. And it speaks to a wider critique of this sort of growing interest in things like that. And the yeah. reason that he's allowed to do that is because of this sort of macabre interest. Yeah, it's,
1: it's. I mean, this isn't just Los Angeles, it's true of any city, really. I mean, as soon as you kind of get into a more of a metropolitan area, you, you start to notice people's tastes get a little bit more sort of, uh, sinister because this kind of people watch this stuff like people watch kind of horrible shaky handy cam footage of a car crash that has just mm. happened three blocks down or something
0: Yeah, and yeah. it's
1: entertainment it's not journalism no it's kind of like going to the circus or something
0: yeah no I um, agree it sort of reminds me of like this sort of obsession with programming I mean it's not quite to the same extent of it but you know stuff like police interceptors and all that kind of stuff yeah, like this there's, yeah. there's not a shred of like actual journalism going on there it's just you know mm. watch Terry like Fast and Furious 6 drive his police <laughs> Subaru around the housing estate and telling someone off for smoking of Spliff you know what I mean it's like yeah. it's that, so, there's something some people find that bizarrely engaging and interesting to submerge themselves in those worlds and i think the reason for that is i think quite strange personally no um if you watch police interceptors you know fair enough good luck to you yeah good luck to you yeah (laughs) um but uh yeah no i think you're right i think there speaks a lot to the darker underbelly of la which is something that you know with collateral and various other films they explore that i mean it is a place where such a small percentage of people achieve these dreams, so it's only, I guess, natural to some extent that they would they would fall into some kind of yeah. darkness, and I guess that's where criminality profits off off the sort of yeah. the, the the failure of yeah of, of which of there is.
1: I don't know the exact percentage, but it's ridiculous the amount yeah. of people that live in cities like Los Angeles and have just. Totally failed. Yeah, Basically. I
0: mean, statistically, you are more likely to. I mean, not mm. to be too dour on, on this yeah, podcast, no. but there are thousands and thousands of people that have, have, I imagine, have not had the best look there. Yeah. Um, and fair play to those that keep plugging away. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fair play to you. Got more gumption than I. I've had a given up after a week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going back to Derby for a bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck this. Fuck this shit. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm off. I'm off back to O2. Good. Well, I think that's, yeah, lots of interesting films there. And I think a lot of themes that tie into Babylon quite well, quite nicely. So before we move on to discuss Babylon, uh, I was thinking more about wanting to discuss films that that reflect on Hollywood. I mean, we've sort of talked about a little bit already with some of the films. They definitely Mm. do reflect not just the landscape and the people, but the industry itself. Okay. Hollywood is indebted to the industry Yeah, <laughs> that's the reason it's there um, but I think it does have a tendency to reflect on the mechanical aspects of the industry how it works and it makes me think of films like Rob Altman's The Player a film that is very sort of critical of like you said before there's Hollywood types the yeah. discussions they have in meetings the sort of cacophonous Let's dialogue do, let's exchanges do lunch kind of yeah, thing. yeah yeah nothing mm-hmm. people just get lost yeah people are just getting lost in these discussions and you just get the sense that people are just sort of floating down a current they have very little control over yeah yeah um, but I think a film that shows the, the biggest similarities thematically is Sunset Boulevard nice um, you know pretty sort of film studies 101 movie it's not particularly out there to discuss it yeah uh, I don't know why I sort of said it with haha this will shock people <laughs> Um <laughs> I've got the DVD case here because, for some reason, I've forgotten the names of the actors (laughs) and the people involved. Gloria Swanson plays Nora Desmond, who is a silent film star who's been chewed up and spat out by the industry upon the arrival of the talkies, which is a huge part of Babylon. Yes, yeah. And the casualties that get left behind. And it's not something that I think a lot of people, including myself, until I started watching these films and reading up on their history... Uh, a few years ago would have really understood just how many casualties they were mm. people that could act without sound, suddenly yeah. being given sound and just not be able to do it
1: yeah, I guess like the audiences would project a voice onto them, and then when it turned out to be something completely different yeah.
0: that 's it like you, the illusion's destroyed it is, and I think yeah. for some and it, again we keep we keep dipping into Babylon uh, quite a lot throughout this discussion, but I think you know there 's this line. From one of the characters that says to Brad Pitt, I think it's Kim Cattrall's character. Yeah, okay. she says, you know, sometimes it's just it, and it's just the end.
1: Yeah, yeah. and I
0: think for Norma Desmond, it is the end, mm. and she etches out this sad existence in a in a sort of this crooked, dilapidated mansion, which is itself like a like a, just a giant homage to that period of the, the Roaring Twenties. Right. Yeah, and she lounges around this house, holding on to the memories of this of the success and the power that she used to command both socially and within the industry. Uh, and she has her uh, butler, played by Eric von Stronheim. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, who is, who is like, writing her fake letters from fans and just keeping this illusion going for her. Yeah. And then she meets William Holden, who's the down-and-out writer in modern Hollywood. And, yeah. and he reluctantly strikes a deal with her to write this script that she's cobbled together Mm. to sort of announce a return to Hollywood. It's a really dark movie <laughs> in the sense that it explores just how vicious the industry can be when it's constantly chasing new innovation. Yeah. Not just innovation in the technological sense, but in terms of narrative uh, and and theme and what audiences want, you know, and how quickly people can be just forgotten, pushed, pushed, pushed away, you know? Yeah.
1: I mean, that just sort of speaks to the nature of art in general, isn't it? It's, it, it's trends. It's not...
0: Especially commercial art, art for the masses.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Um, And either you know the model has got to be self-sustaining, and in order for that to happen, unfortunately, you've got to accept that there are going to be technological and narrative advancements which will push a lot of what people previously wanted and loved completely to the wayside. Mm. Yeah, Uh, and the I think the first big one for Hollywood was. The, the sound, the mm. the invention of the talkies and the, the kind of introduction of uh, post-synced sound into cinema, which changed it, obviously, for the better, but there was a, a very clear and um, defined divide that happened almost instantly. Mm. I haven't seen Sunset Boulevard in a long time, but I do remember it being, like you say, like very, very tragic
0: and very retrospective and mm. uh, and...
1: Yeah, uncompromising.
0: Yeah, it is. I mean, it's almost nightmarish. I mean, the way that Desmond is just living out, etching out the, her last years, mm. you know, her wealth slowly dwindling and just clutching on to the memories of these slowly de- <laughs> degrading memories of her past. It's, it's kind of heartbreaking. Yeah. And exactly. I think it links really well to the themes of Babylon, which we're going to go into more, but this just this sort of idea of the way Hollywood treats... It stars the way Hollywood treats the creatives. I mean, there's a pretty strong critique of how Hollywood treats its writers. Yeah, in 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 Sunset Boulevard, despite how essential they are to the process of getting a film made, they are sort of almost, you know, they they achieve they have achieved none of the stardom or the acknowledgement they probably deserve. Maybe not the stardom, but certainly the acknowledgement. Yeah. It rewards on re I think. I think the first time I saw it, I was only I was pretty green in this sort of film studies thing, <laughs> so I was you know I wasn't really acknowledging that. I was sort of just more swept up by the the sort of whole atmosphere of the film. But the more I watch it, the more it reveals lots, Wilder's keen observations about the, the nature of the industry, uh, the perils of innovation, the way it treats its stars. I mean, Hollywood has a pretty disgusting track record for the way it's treated its stars in the past, you know? Yeah, yeah, Making various. them change their names, making them...
1: Making them smoke earlier. on. Making them smoke. Yeah. I mean, and then
0: this is something, again, that Babylon touches on, this idea of celebrity culture, the obsession of celebrity culture, and how that can sort of... How that, you know, if marketed properly, can mm. guarantee fiscal success like you've never dreamed. <laughs> yeah. But at the expense of, again, the soul of the individual that you're sort of pushing yeah. more and more. Because in that time, the classic Hollywood studio model you know the studio owned you owned the talent it owned not only the crew but the, the actors and actresses yeah. that were on screen and had more than enough rights apparently yeah. to sort of dictate their personal private lives yeah. and um i don't know like i think the film touches on these things perhaps not the sort of the private life aspect because by this point desmond is a sort of dinosaur in the eyes of the studios and you know they're not interested in her but i think it does speak to that um and also this idea that that Hollywood will be here forever. It's here to stay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and we find out. Obviously, this is before the collapse of old Hollywood. That, that isn't necessarily the case. Mm. So, I think we should move on then to yes, Babylon itself because we, we've sort of, we, you know, we, we, we've cut we, we've cut flex off it a little bit. Yeah, but I think the first thing I th- I want to say about the film that, despite the negativity you might think we have for it, mm. and I don't want to speak for you necessarily, Ben, but I'm going to say yeah. that we both didn't hate it. Perhaps as much as it seems. <laughs> in yeah, discussion. I, I didn't hate it at
1: all. No, no. it was just it, it was it was slightly disappointing in how it un, unfolded. Yeah, I think ultimately, uh, I didn't really come out of the cinema knowing what it was definitively about. Mm-hmm. It started out as this kind of hedonistic, very very explicit. Kind of party movie and then turned into a Hollywood fable and then ended like a love letter. Mm, It wasn't, mm. it didn't really know which direction it wanted to go Mm -hmm. um, and it ended up just being a bit of a a muddled mix of all three.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. I think there were real gem moments in the film Mm. which we're going to discuss, but I'm completely with you in that sort of that the way in which Chazelle clearly wants to desperately achieve all those things he wants to he wants to sort of mythologize the birth of cinema yeah he wants to tackle the more heart-rendering moments of those actors that are left at the wayside or the people whose livelihoods have just been crushed by the technological innovation of recording sound yeah um you know but i I agree there is just there's just too much going on here yeah i would like to start though in the beginning yeah Mm -hmm. um the film, as we've said a few times, the word hedonism has come up a few times, but it's entirely apt yeah, yeah. because it is about this sort of the Roaring Twenties, a period of time famously explored by you know Scott Fitzgerald and the Great Gatsby. This yeah. time of excess, yeah. uh, at the, almost at the expense of anything else. Yeah. My gripe, however, is not necessarily a huge gripe, but it's something I wrestled with as soon as I came out of the cinema and continue to wrestle with now. Is how that hedonism is portrayed because it seems really fucking exaggerated. Yeah. For a few reasons. But one reason, I was really online and I was just doing some research for the film. You know, we we do our own research. We do our our own research. (laughs) don't mess around. But, you know, the idea that everyone involved is like drunk 24 hours a day. Yeah. I mean, a film historian pointed out that whilst that aesthetically is entertaining, if that was the case, nothing would get done. (laughs) No. (laughs) I mean, the film industry at that point in the 20s it overshot everyone's expectations in terms of its popularity. Yeah. It was the fourth biggest industry in America at that time. Jesus. So it's not, this is clearly something that I think a lot of people, this is technological innovation with the camera and this idea that we can make stories out of it. Yeah. And people are still trying to fathom how that works. And then all of a sudden you've got all this money to play with. And Mm. obviously that's going to impact people negatively. Um, and positively, I guess. Um, But I just think that the way that Chazelle handles that, I don't know, it seemed more to me like an excuse for him to use flashy camera moves. that He's very good at uh, The film looks great, and his camera moves are always great. I mean, he's one of the most dynamic users of the camera that I can think of in modern Hollywood. Yeah, definitely. But it just felt too flashy, to the point that it was distracting from the ideas and themes of the film, and also stretching that element to the point of farce. Yeah. Do you think maybe he made it... Sort of how he imagined the
1: 20s were, yeah, based on his own kind of consumption of media as opposed to
0: doing a little bit more historical research. Well, I think, I think there's obviously going to be, you know, I think it's very well documented that the 20s was a time of excess, if yeah. you were rich, obviously, yeah, well, that's um, another thing, yeah. But, um, I think you're partially right about that. I think mm. also, I mean, it's, it's anchored in some area of truth. I mean, the yeah. house where the parties. A, ba- a based is based on like a real life house yeah. for socialites and people in Hollywood that went there and apparently could essentially do whatever they wanted. Right. Okay. However, if it, if it was like a sort of twenty four hour jazz fueled coke binge orgy, yeah, I'm not sure if that's necessarily the case. Who knows? But a lot of people echo that. Yeah. A lot more credible people. I'm sorry, I'm <laughs> I'm not leading them. You know, I'm just actually stealing their thoughts. Fair. No, but it's just something I felt, and I I just think that that. Whilst entertaining and whilst gives a lot of scope for Giselle to move that camera around very competently, I mean, that must have been, for from a blocking perspective, a fucking nightmare. Yeah. Uh, but Giselle's clearly <laughs> adept at that because it looks yeah. great. It does, yeah. Um, but well, I just well wonder rehearsed. how much that really reflects the true aspect of the film. Because I think it undermines it a little bit in the sense that isn't that exciting enough. If you're a film fan, like Giselle yeah. clearly is, yeah. and we are, yeah, um, surely just just focusing on that period is enough mm. why dress it up more well I mean like
1: going back to what I was saying earlier like how it ends is is like hey I, this is my love letters of Hollywood yeah and so why begin it in a you know with a scenario that is fanciful yeah uh, and portraying things like people getting chucked out of windows and Probably raped, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, that, there's a lot of darkness. There. A lot of horrible stuff happened, yeah, and that's and that's no secret. But he presents it in uh, kind of a Wolf for Wall Streety way, you yeah. Know? And um, there was some confusion there because it it ended so
0: drastically different. Yeah, I mean, again, it's I'm so undecided about it. I just feel like I don't know. It 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 it's definitely warps it to the point of distraction for me mm, yeah. as to how much it really bothers me i'm still not 100 sure but it's definitely something that i just felt from the offset as one of the more sort of divisive elements of the film okay. and that seems to be something that's shared quite a lot among a lot of people when you just have a cursory read on letterboxd or you have a look on you know the sort of reviews people either really buy into that yeah, or yeah. they really don't um and i i don't know i'm sort of going to contradict myself already by saying i sort of sit in the middle of that
1: Yeah, no, I didn't like it. There was definitely points in the film I kind of got on with. Mm. Um, Brad Pitt's arc I thought was quite touching in places. Mm. Um, Not perfect, again, but going back to what we were saying about the temporary nature of being a kind of Hollywood Mm. star and how different your lifestyle can change. You know, if, if you get used to a certain lifestyle at all you'll come to sort of hold that dear to you and then mm. it gets sort of ripped away from you so quickly. He he kind of carried that, although I do have some problems with the, his performance um, in that I thought it was quite derivative uh, of his other roles. Uh, his act, The way his kind of arc was written, I thought was quite nice. Yeah. And one of yeah. the, the easier ones to follow.
0: Agreed. I also like that he wrestles with, uh, I think Catherine Watterson plays his sort of pretentious uh <laughs> theatre partner, doesn't he? Yeah, it's that's like right. In, yeah. In, in sort of classic Hollywood star style, they got married about 19 times in their lives, and this is yeah. one of the many partners that he has in the film. But what I quite like about it is that he wrestles with her, and I think with himself, in terms of the cultural worth of the medium, mm. because film at, at this point is fairly early so you know it's an early medium it's still figuring itself out and the film goes to great lengths to show the construct in its construction that it's still very much a sort of people are still figuring the little details out (laughs) of the filmmaking process the the sort of madness of it I mean Mm. the film really doubles down on that in a way that makes me not sure about how real that was either but I mean it was pretty entertaining. It looked great. There's oh, a great yeah. sequence with the the big, the big the sort of battle scene that they film.
1: Oh yeah, and him going to get the camera. That yeah. was that was a cool one. Yeah, moment. I liked
0: that. It's peppered with those moments. Like it does have individual
1: points which are like just ridiculously entertaining. Yeah. It was what was the other moment though there was quite a good gag in it. I don't know why it made me laugh so much. There's a bit where um they're talking about how sound is gonna change everything. And they're in a toilet. Yeah and, like, yeah, yeah, and someone was like, "Do you think this sound thing's good for films? Do you think it makes sense?" Yeah. And Brad Pitt's like, "Yeah, yeah, I think so." And then someone just just takes the shit in the yeah, background. Yeah, it yeah. was a
0: bit too meta, but it was. Yeah, I mean, the and film so- does that a lot. I mean, it's, and it's varying success, but no, I agree with you. Yeah. But I just want to go back to that idea of you know wrestling with the cultural worth of okay. the medium because I think that's one of the film's strong elements, certainly from Brad Pitt's performance yeah. in the film, mm. and it made me think more broadly about how. In you know, our relationship with the medium in it, itself and yeah. how other mediums will quickly jump on and demonise new, the new kid on the block, so to speak. Yeah, you know, yeah. I think that, and that must have been what happened to film because film is this new thing and it's obviously incredibly popular specifically yeah. with a certain strata of people. So it's not really for upper Class people. No, they, it's, it's they touch for... on that in, in the yeah, film. Yeah, the they? sort of classist view of, of the film that yeah. theaters for the sort of snobs. Yeah, and film is for the sort of for for the working, working trolls. Yeah. yeah, the whole yeah. idea, the whole concept of the Nickelodeon.
1: And, yeah. and the sort of the cheapness of it. Um, yeah, men, it, it appealed to quite universally. He does, He has that lovely speech, doesn't he? It's such a nice, unexpected moment when his friends just finally kind of. Committed suicide. Commit suicide. Spoiler. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, spoilers. Um, but he just... Uh, he has he lots just, of friends in the film. You don't yeah, know who yeah. it is. Ooh, who, yeah. who is it, mate? Well, you um, probably work it out pretty quickly. Yeah. But. <laughs> um, and uh, for some reason, he just goes off on one, doesn't he, to his, yeah. uh, his wife about how her interests are for the, the few and his and the, the, the things that he does, whilst they might on the outside seem quite trashy, they actually mean a lot to a lot of people. And that, that kind of touched me a little bit. Yeah, it mm. spoke
0: to me in a way as well about, the you know, cause I, the negativity around, like, uh, Marvel films. I mean, mm. this might be a stretch, but, I mean, if that means to something to someone... Yeah. ...should we judge that? You know what I mean? And, you know, we, all, we all say, <laughs> you know, definitely we should judge them or definitely... <laughs> Oh no, definitely, yeah, a, yeah, definitely. Uh, as in, I agree with your point. <laughs> yeah, no. we should judge them. Yeah, we should. Fucking Marvel, grow fan up, fanboys. <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. no, 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 not at all. But you know, I, I think it speaks more broadly to that idea. I thought, which I found quite interesting, the idea that you know, yeah, people are going to be snobby about it, but if it genuinely gives you something like a feeling, then yeah. it's achieved it. It's achieved its goal in the same way yeah. an arty film would touch someone with higher tastes. You know, yeah, and that yeah. might be some, something that. A person with more highbrow taste would struggle to accept oh yeah exactly and, and it, that's I, how the film plays that debate out
1: yeah I, I i mean i'm guilty of that when someone says that they like really loved a, a film which i kind of knew in my heart that i was never going to enjoy yeah i struggle with that sometimes I like, part of me wants to say to them like introduce them to more highbrow stuff but then i just kind of think like well no, you're... Yeah, who who are we, man? Yeah, like... You know. like I mean, we I, are doing a film podcast. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> who are we? What the fuck <laughs> are we? Yeah. But, but it just, it is just like, I mean, I had a discussion with my father-in-law quite recently and he said, um, he just kind of said, I, I I just like films that entertain me the same. And I kind of thought like, I guess it's the same way that I like listening to music that sounds good in my ears. Mm. You know, it's fine to just want to sit back and and let something take you over you don't have to think about it it mm. can be it can be an act of relaxation not study and mm. that's absolutely fine and yeah uh, I, my initial kind of gut reaction to that was to go well I want to show you this film and this film yeah, and this film. But then yeah, I just yeah. thought like no that's like he's never going to enjoy them and that's fine
0: <laughs> yeah I mean there is a sort of opposing argument I guess in the sense that it would be nice if people enjoyed things more broadly yeah a more broader scope of things but I I don't know, I think it's a really complicated argument, but I I do fundamentally believe in what we've just said. Yeah. But I think, <laughs> tune into another episode and we'll yeah, be yeah, yeah. off Marvel anyway, so <laughs> there we go, that's how it works. Oh. But yeah, no, the idea of you know a new medium, and the only thing I could think of that's comparable is video games. Okay. So when video games came out, everyone mm. did the same. They all, yeah. they all shit on video games. It was like, oh, it's not very good, or it's yeah. making, it's going to turn your child into an axe murderer. And there's this really interesting theory about med- the way media or the different mediums fight they're all pitching for your time so they're all fighting amongst themselves for your time right okay and the only way that they can sort of solidify how much time you spend with them is by demonizing another one or the, the sort of the new kid on the box, the the right. growing one you know so video games in this case yeah i mean but. it's just something that i just thought about and and it's so interesting to me that people who would demonize video games who would say be more into film yeah you know, they probably would have been the same people who were sat in the rafters watching plays, like, you yeah. off films. You know, what I mean, it just—it's an interesting sort of thing. I couldn't help but shake this idea of how people sort of view a new medium. Either do they welcome it with open arms, or do they critique it on the basis that it's popular with a certain group of people? Yeah, I find that—I just found that element really interesting. I thought that was—I've <laughs> got a sort of a real long way. No, no, no. But you know, I think that particular scene, as overt as it was, because there's quite a lot of like. It's a bit preachy. Yeah, there's but... a lot of preachy. Sort of stand up and wave my hand, and you know, basically lay all of Chazelle's thematic cards on the table. Yeah, yeah. But in this instance, I agree with you. I think it worked.
1: Yeah, I actually thought that maybe if the film touched on that a little bit more, it would have been much better. Like if it had hit the ground running with that idea, I would have enjoyed it a lot more. And if it had been an an examination of different art forms through time, it, it would have landed a lot a lot better, but it, unfortunately, like we said th- at the start, it just kind of had a lot more to say.
0: <laughs> it did, and whilst it is to the film's detriment overall, I kind of can't help but admire Chazelle for trying it so much, yeah, for taking so much on. yeah, And that's why I think my relationship with the film is always going to be a bit complicated, in the sense that I'm always going to feel really conflicted about so many of its key parts, but overall I'm going to think, Fair play yeah, fair play for giving it a giving it a go, you know
1: it's a strange one for him because like i I loved whiplash, I really liked that film, I watched it a fair few times, I wasn't that keen on la La land, oh, like thinking about it, I enjoyed it fine, but I don't think I'm gonna rush to see it again because I struggle with musicals, and I thought it was a bit too soppy okay. <laughs> um, and then first man. I think it might actually be his best. <laughs> See, I've not seen first man. Oh, it's really good, man. It's genuinely a okay, really yeah. good watch. Um, and that's that uh, <laughs> just goes to show that Chazelle might be a lot more at home with focusing on one character mm. um, because he does it so brilliantly and he's really good at sort of delving into people's psyches. Okay. And, but with a, f- a script like Babylon, it's really difficult to do that. I mean, he, he succeeds in some respects, but he, despite the fact it's three hours, 12 minutes long, he never really lands no into one person's mind.
0: And you don't think he really lands in any meaningful way in any of the key themes of the film. I mean, there's this idea of nostalgia, something we've we already touched on in the yeah. previous episode. We mentioned quite a lot in our podcast because it's something that's clearly of great interest to both of us. Yeah, And I think he handles that semi-well. I think there's the, the sort of... Obviously, there's a lot of reverence for that period of history in terms of yeah. it being... A time of wit of great innovation mm. and and the sort of limitlessness of that innovation at the time. I think now we're pretty. We sort of spoke about this before, but you know we've got all this technology, and yet it seems so shackled by yeah. the sort of expectations of, of audience, uh, studio heads, all that sort of stuff. Um, whereas at that point there was none of that, and yeah. you really get the sense it's, it's this embryonic. Thing, no one quite knows what to do with it, no one quite knows the impact of it. It's making them a shed load of money, yeah. And there's just this limitlessness to it. And even when it gets to the point of addressing the transition, the technological innovation, yeah, the, the the arrival of sound in films, um, which is a huge moment. And we've sort of talked about this, we've spoken about this briefly when we discussed, um. Sunset Boulevard, but you know the, the casualties that are left behind, mm. and I think there are some touching moments in that. I mean, there's that scene with Brad Pitt and Kim Cattrall when she sort of has this—they have this sort of oh, yeah. back and forth, and she's basically saying, "Well, sometimes it is just someone's time. Yeah, you're just that's it. You've had your time, and it's just done, and there's yeah. nothing you can do about it." Again, incredibly overt. Yeah, <laughs> not, I mean, not not subtle. Which, no, which no, no, but no. then is that is that something we should level at Chazelle? I don't know because. Given the use of the camera, mm. the way the the scenes that are involved in the film, is subtlety really the name of the game here when he's got so much reverence? Yeah, no, it definitely isn't. I
1: mean, there's that big montage at the end, which I really hated, actually. Yeah. But um, as that aside, it isn't a subtle film at all. And I, I like that scene between uh, Brad Pitt and mm. Kim Cattrall's like it just kind of goes to show the just just how ruthless the court of public opinion is. Mm hmm um and it's that was interesting the way he played it was quite actually i'm ironically enough quite subtle yeah um, i'm yeah. actually weirdly how this podcast is going on i'm like actually maybe brad
0: pitt was quite good in this film i don't know um but yeah it's um i think we always said that he was good it's just that his performance is as you said derivative of more recent roles that yeah were in better films you know that do things that at least have a sort of bit more of a handle on what they're trying to do and say Yeah, I think, and if they don't, they're happy to sort of let the audience be enveloped by that, as opposed to being thrust in it time and time again to make the point clear, like it is here. Yeah, but again, that talks to what we were saying before about the the nostalgic element of the film—that there is all of this, there's the hilarity and the hedonism, Mm. but there is this—I mean, it's tacked on. The 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 sort of the darkness, obviously, there's the 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 casualties, yeah, people that overindulge. I mean, Raga Ravi's character completely overindulges and becomes shell of her former self, full of these aspirations that she has. I mean and there's a suggestion that her that her life before has scarred her in ways unimaginable. Yeah. And that will ultimately be her downfall when given all of this success that she has to sort of Yeah. She ends up sort of being consumed by it. Um so there is obviously on the and the racial element too. I mean it's it's again it's it's not really touched upon in the hugely significant way, which I think is maybe to the film's detriment. Yeah, I agree. Because the film sort of sets this idea up that these parties are this place of incredibly liberal for the time ideals. You know, yeah, You've got yeah. like a lot of... It, this is pre-Hayes Code, right?
1: So, yeah, yeah. Like, there, was no, there was no limit to anything. It was a new yeah. medium and it was exciting
0: and everyone was
1: just experimenting with it, basically.
0: I mean, and I, I don't take issue with that in terms of the, the film, because they were people of from a different ethnic backgrounds who were Trailblazers who were breaking glass ceilings, as it were, yeah, in, in a time that it must have been fucking really difficult to do so. Yeah, but I, I, just think the way again going back to those party scenes, I'm thinking, was it as liberal as this? Mm. And I'm not, and I'm not saying that as as if it's like a criticism of it, of it, of it, of it being liberal, but in terms of. Does it treat the era era with the seriousness? If it's going to talk about the dark side of nostalgia, then does the film fall victim of the thing that it's trying to critique? You know what I mean? I think actually, yeah, yeah, you're you're right there because it does present these
1: images to you in a kind of quite gleeful fashion, mm. and yet also it has the gall to say, but <laughs> you know, but it's bad. All this kind of stuff mm. it's, it's confusing and it's strange, isn't it? Something you said earlier that sort of was interesting. I actually quite liked the Toby Maguire section. Oh yeah, the bit where he um, takes him to this horrendous underground, like sex fight club. I don't really know what it is, but yeah, uh, that like, it was a weird moment, and it was it didn't it felt out of place like a lot of scenes in this film. But uh, I quite liked it. I don't know, I thought it was a welcome relief. I was like, okay, this is quite frightening.
0: Mm. It? Yeah, it was yeah, pretty yeah. dark. Yeah. Um, I just felt it was really derivative of the, the drug scene in Boogie Nights. Yeah, no, I do I do think you, I, you're actually right there. I we, a lot of this is... Yeah, and we talk about this with you. Again, another word, derivative alongside hedonism said a lot in this podcast, yeah. this particular <laughs> episode. But I just think um, lots of these moments have just been done so much better in other films. And yeah. I think that... I don't know it just it, it does take the whole film into the realms of pastiche in a way that isn't positive.
1: No, uh actually I mean thinking about it yeah Boogie Nights is it is just Boogie Nights basically like the mm. majority of this film is if you think about it from a narrative standpoint it's basically Boogie Nights but it doesn't it's not as interesting because Boogie Nights is about the the kind of pornography industry and there's a point in that film where uh, it there's a transition from film to video, and it's like the same. Mm. It's like you know, it's from the silent era to the talkies, but then in Boogie Nights, it's from the like kind of 16 millimeter film to videotape, and how mm. that changed the industry. And yeah, you've got like a plethora of different characters in both films. <laughs> Like, it, was it copied a little bit? Like, mm. it was clearly a point of reference for Chazelle, yeah. without a doubt, because it's always scary how similar those two films are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. What about the film's sort of cinematic element? Because we've talked about how impressive it looks, but I, mm. it started to bother me a bit too much how dynamic that camera was. I'm not saying that it, it's something that I really will hold against the film or Chazelle moving forward, but I just think um, that uh, it was, that dynamism, that excitement, it moved with that same level of excitement the narrative has. Yeah. And whereas the excitement for the narrative ends up taking it into some sort of negative territory, I think the camera does as well, the movement. Yeah.
1: No, I agree with you.
0: It was jarring and
1: unnecessary. Uh, the, the story didn't call for that. Like, what is it he does? He puts it on a big crane just swoops in doesn't it it's mm. like it's like the the kind of it's like zooming in except he's actually moving the camera mm. in not just using the lens the there's a particularly nasty one near the end when uh there's the scene in the cinema mm. which has that stupid montage as well mm. um, with the ink in water what the fuck was that about anyway yeah. um but yeah the camera just like it, it's just showing off yeah 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 <laughs> um yeah.
0: that's how that's the only way i can describe it and uh, the way he would you Quickly pan the camera between yeah. characters and discussions for, I guess, for comedic effect. But I mean, I didn't, I didn't register with me. No, it
1: works in like clerks, yeah, <laughs> that bit in the car and clerks where it's like just panning yeah, back and forth, yeah. but not in this. It's like-
0: overusing the same joke essentially yeah. over and over you, again which is never a good thing no no no. unless no, you're sort of it. making a wider point about his overuse in other things in a satirical manner yeah. maybe that's it but i don't think so i'm not so sure about that no <laughs> i think he just
1: loved to move it about and sweep it around and kind of pat himself or and his director of photography on the back afterwards a yeah bit. i
0: mean the film looks glorious yes it uh, does it is,
1: it, I, it's color graded nicely
0: uh just quickly then, because I've just realised, <laughs> you know, we're really running over here. We did say it'd be meaty. Oh, yeah. Um, the script was another area of issue for me. We've talked about a couple of those scenes that yeah. sort of, that, I guess, shined a little bit. Mm. Um, but again, it, subtlety wasn't the name of the game. And again, we've already said is that an issue? But I think just for me, as a, I, I think it is a little bit. Yeah, the very
1: fact that we're pondering over it suggests to me that it it could have done with a a lot of cutting and a lot of. A lot of shifting about it was a bit
0: underdeveloped, I, I thought, a bit yeah. underbaked. I mean, there's a few bits where just people go, oh, you know, we can go to this into this industry and follow our dreams. And it's like, this isn't, you know, like, I don't know, this isn't done with irony. No. I mean, it's done in the sense that this is obviously going to be referenced back to when we're cast back to Margot Robbie as that sort of wide-eyed, optimistic yeah. individual when she's so far in deep into yeah. that sort of moral quagmire that the industry has sort of thrown her in. Mm. Um, but I just, yeah, I, I, I'm i just not convinced by some of those elements narratively, I think, uh, and structurally, I just, and the way they're presented in the script, I just think it's a bit naff. And I <laughs> yeah. think arguably one of the weaker elements in the film mm. because I can sort of forgive the camera. I can sort of forgive maybe the elements of the history that it stretches and distorts to suit the sort of, yeah. The approach that Giselle clearly wants to take. But I'm, I'm yeah, I'm not sure. Do do you think he's
1: trying too hard? To, I think so. To be a Tarantino, you know, to be a David Lynch, to be to be that.
0: I think this is a big statement movie. Yeah. This is a film that says look at not just uh I look how much I love films, but it's also Yeah. Look at how much I can handle. Look how much I I can do. This yeah. is like a big statement movie, not just in terms of the film he's made, but literally as well for yeah, him as, yeah. as as a filmmaker. And I admire that. Mm. I admire that he's gone out and done that and said, "Well, I can punch with the best of them." Yeah, at least in his mind. Well, but I I think he's bite he's bitten off way more than he can chew.
1: Yeah and I, I think his next film would be a lot smaller. I'll be very surprised if I give him more than like 30 million to make his next yeah. one. He that quite often happens is when when there's such a big swing and such a big miss they can quite often go back to their roots mm-hmm. eventually. I mean for like someone like Shyamalan, Malam, it takes a few films. <laughs> yeah but then you know in, this, in the same vein it can it can actually produce
0: some really interesting work. I mean look at Nolan. I mean obviously yeah. Tenet mm. didn't do that well no so and he went there he's done Oppenheimer which is a significantly smaller budget yeah I'm not sure if that's necessarily the studios doing that to Nolan because I know I imagine Nolan's probably got a free pass a little bit given this is a different studio this one it's not Warner Brothers is it no it's Universal I think oh wow okay so there we go interesting to see that I'm not sure the reasons to that I don't I'm not I can't imagine he would have been forced into that but it's just an interesting comparison I guess
1: yeah no definitely
0: um I, th- I think you know. This is slightly like kind
1: of going on, uh, going on a bit of a tangent. But Tenet was his like meant to be a big kind of tentpole thing. and COVID fucked it a little bit, along with not mixed reviews and uh, yeah.
0: mixed public opinion. I think it's Nolan uh, being drunk on himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To be definitely, honest, yeah. Look, oh, it's that sort of classic. Uh, debate. We're, we're on Nolan now for a minute. Yeah, but it's that That's classic funny. sort of uh, thing that I think a lot of people have known. Either he's cinema's greatest savior or he's a pseudo intellectual shit flinger, <laughs> and people don't seem to be quite sure which side of the camp he is in. Yeah. Um, I personally think his best films Dunkirk because there's no posturing in Dunkirk. It's yeah. just a. It's just a film about Dunkirk that he yeah. does really well. Yeah, and there's, um, the sounds nice
1: as well. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> his sound in films
0: is fucking. His tenant was particularly bad yeah and like back the third the third installment of the batman yeah yeah there's a lot of problems with that um i don't
1: know i I think i my uh, favorite nolan film is the prestige (laughs) okay i really like the prestige that doesn't surprise me for some reason yeah Uh, yeah. and and i'm and i'm I'm glad that that is your favorite yeah the same way that first man is
0: my favorite chazelle
1: film i don't really know why
0: i I love that though i think it's good um that sounds ended. like I'm really taking the piss there, but I'm being genuine. <laughs> that's I good, mate. It, mate. Well yeah, done. Yeah, yeah. Well yeah. done, mate. All the magic. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking loser. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I was, honestly, that's being genuine. <laughs> One oh, thing yeah. I guess we need to touch on uh, before the end, before mm. the outro, a famed outro, <laughs> yeah. uh, is that love letter to film. Because we've talked about a little bit about nostalgia, the history that he covers, the transition. Yeah. But there's the love letter to to the medium, yeah. Um, and I think in in large part he sort of half succeeds because you can clearly tell that he loves the medium. Obviously, <laughs> he yeah, does. yeah. He's a film director, um, but there is a lot of reverence there. And even if these film stars are long dead, and many of them their careers were cut short by that transition into into uh, sound recording or yeah. the use of sound recording. There's that idea that you know when you when you put those films through and put them on the big screen, they come to life again. Yeah, and I really like that idea. I like the idea for someone that adores the medium and will continue to until I die. You know, yeah. it's 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 a special thing to to think about that. Um, and to I don't know. I feel like yeah, the reverence is overbearing, but it's almost deserved in the sense that it is what it was one of the biggest innovations of human history. Certainly culturally. Yeah. And I think he he acknowledges that it's important to have that mindset, yeah. And it's and it, at least the attempt to inject that into the sort of mainstream, yeah, um, landscape is, is is commendable.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's dealing with a medium that immortalizes people visually and mm. also their voice, mm-hmm. and so he and he does. Whilst I have a lot of problems with the way he approached it in at the end. The the, the th- message is is a nice one, and definitely the love is genuine. It's not just him trying to copy Tarantino Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He he's trying to put his own personal spin on it. Yeah.
0: Um. But that, it, that's five minutes. Yeah. It just, Holy shit, it, that was poor. It was. I a mean, real shame. It is. I mean, this idea. He, he sort of spoilers. I mean, yeah. if you've listened this far, the I see five minutes. Not, of yeah, three hour film. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, he sort of does like a snapshot of the history of film, the innovations that have, yeah. have sort of punctuated film's history, and I find that quite strange. And it kind of, I don't know, like it devalued it a little bit for me. I thought, and I, and I'm not saying that it isn't sort of. You look through that, it didn't have an impact on me because you do get to see the progression, it is interesting. Mm. But it's it's not. I don't know, not merited, and it feels a bit cheesy. Yeah, uh, and completely out of place with the rest of the film. I mean, fucking avatars in avatar's it for Christ's in sake. It. Yeah, it's
1: then ended... it cuts
0: back to some guy or one of the lead characters. Sorry, some guy's a bit throwaway. <laughs> um, you know, sat in a, in a film in a in a cinema in the 1950s, crying yeah. for some reason, and it's just like, what the fuck is going on here, man? Like, just end the film. You could have ended this film probably about 15, 20 minutes ago. Oh yeah, at, you could have ended it
1: at the point where, where you know where Brad Pitt made. Makes his the impassioned speech about how how much people love what he works on, like that. That is a a wonderful illustration of what you were trying to say at the end. Yeah, yeah. You don't need to put that that montage of that ink uh, splodging in the water. Like that was too much. Uh, It didn't fit into the rest of the film. And then the the bright sort of
0: colours. Yeah. um, Is that some sort of bizarre sort of attempt to please? goddard lord goddard yeah, i don't know maybe i don't know it just it feels and it's it's i don't know thrown in at the end yeah. I, i'm sure that was his intention all the way through to have that scene in yeah i don't know um i'd have my sort of finger in the pulse of Wait, I'd love <laughs> hollywood to be executives but, yeah. and the decisions that are made behind closed doors on people's films but i don't know i, I just think that for me it felt tacked on and um there's so much debate at the moment about how precarious the landscape of Hollywood is at the moment. Mm, yeah, and then to go up to that point, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there is something there in the sense that he's coming from one precarious time to another.
1: Yeah, I don't know. He, he might be trying to comment on the the fragility of the going to the, you know the act of going to the theater. Obviously, the pandemic's kind of it's made a lot of cinemas suffer, and that's maybe what he was trying to say. and I kind of sort of understand
0: where he was coming from if that was. That was what he's trying to do. The experience of the cinema mm. in, you know, in terms of obviously, you know, there's nothing wrong with watching films at home. I that's the main way I watch movies, but yeah. you know, like um, the cinema experience is something to be cherished. And I think yeah. that's what he wants to sort of get across, but I, it it didn't really Don't say a film in the twenties. Yeah. You know what I mean, it's just, if that's what the ultimate
1: message was going to be, he could have done that so much more or, subtly.
0: Or the idea that, you know, it, it's all here on the silver screen we've yeah. we've We've gone from you know people innovating in in the twenties and and you know and and when you watch films from that era you just it is something so lovely and beautiful yeah. about it mm. and now we've got blue people riding pterodactyl <laughs> uh, things yeah. in you know what I mean I don't know, <laughs> right. I just don't know what the point was, but. Whatever, whatever, Damien. Whatever, mate. Would have loved to be in a fly on the wall when he was deciding
1: what films to put in there. Yeah, yeah. He's obviously, you know, they've they've got that this mammoth task of being like, right, we need to basically represent all of cinema. Yeah, it in five minutes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Like yeah. Jesus, how do you decide what films to put in? I don't know why they landed on Avatar. Um, I yeah. guess it technologically sort of makes sense, I suppose. But
0: Terminator Two is in there as well. Yeah, it was yeah yeah yeah. Oh Christ, it was yeah. a
1: lot of James Cameron ones in yeah, there. Yeah, go. Must, maybe a little favour there,
0: thing. bit yeah. of a handy. Yeah, not, yeah. not a hand job. <laughs> no, <laughs> don't, that's we, what I, yeah, we don't yeah. want to put, start putting out rumours that Michelle's been giving James Cameron hand jobs. Mate, <laughs> it'll be it'll be the like tomorrow's newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, two losers suggest <laughs> yeah. some bizarre sex, exchange of sexual favours, just uh, so Cameron could get two steals from his film. Yes, yeah. <laughs> on, on to James Giselle's film. film. Um, however, right. That's that. That's battle. interesting film. Mm. I, I will always say it's an interesting film, and I know it always seems like a bit of a cop out. Yeah. Um. And a non-committal, mm. and I think we maybe have come across more negative than I actually feel about it. But I yeah. think overall, I, I stand by those criticisms. But I will say, I didn't regret seeing it. No, me neither. So,
1: I would say I'd recommend watching it, but I wouldn't. I'd kind of recommend it with caution. Yes. Uh, it's yeah. polarising yeah. so like you know don't come back to me when you hated it and fell asleep yeah yeah <laughs> yeah. we're not yeah it's
0: a good thing we don't say our address at the start of the podcast <laughs> <isn't it>? that'd <laughs> no, be quite yeah. ballsy though wouldn't it <laughs> yeah, saying our address yeah. if you want to come and like not anyone listens <laughs> <laughs> the people that listen know our addresses anyway yeah, so yeah. it's all. <laughs> why are you here why are you trying to fight me about this film like we're mates like <laughs> yeah right nice right questing the
1: cinematic void
0: There we have it then. Uh, Another big, sprawling discussion. It's funny, we criticise Chazelle for being sprawling and we've just been sprawling like the last hour and a bit. But there we go. Sorry, Damien. We're two people sat in a squalid living room (laughs) and make films for a living, so there we go. We've got a big telly. Yeah, that's true. There's a big Mm. telly here. Nice. Nice telly. (laughs) So, focusing on to the next episode. Mm. Or episodes, I should say. Yes. Because we've got a few ideas uh, and a few films we want to discuss. So I'm just going to tell you them now to whet your appetite. Ooh. So the first film will be The Whale. Nice. The Return of Fraser. Yeah. Not, uh, Fr- uh, not 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 not, 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 <laughs> not, <laughs> not <laughs> Fraser the sitcom. Yeah, yeah. Uh. Appar- apparently, he's moved to Portishead. Really? Yeah, yeah. Kelsey Grammer now lives in Portishead. I don't know how true that is. I don't want to get sued for saying that, but no. apparently he lives in Port Said. Yeah, um,
1: <laughs> Fraser's return. Yeah, Fraser. and arguably, would you say Aronofsky's potential return as well? Yeah,
0: I think he, he's he's dabbled in. Um, and he's been you know he dabbled with a bit of mainstream blockbuster didn't he with Noah he did Noah and then he did Mother
1: exclamation mark
0: obviously oh, I haven't seen Mother so I might watch that in preparation maybe yeah that, that
1: really I mean he didn't make another film for a while and did, I don't think he took kindly to its reception
0: um, uh, I remember yeah he was now. a bit sore about it yeah, I think, yeah. yeah okay mm-hmm. so we're going to cover that and, an ex- and a discussion around the way the film portrays the loner
1: Yes, Ooh.
0: which I think is a, is a lot of great films there to discuss. Yeah, definitely. Quite swiftly after that, however, we have a mm. another film, uh, The Fablemans. Yes, uh, a semi autobiographical effort by the maestro Steven Spielberg. Yes, we've got a we, guest. Got we a have special a guest. guest for that one. Well, haven't we haven't we? We have. We have got the what uh, the OG. Yeah, sending boys to Cinnamon, Alfie Martin, the dear Alfie Martin, will be on for that episode. We can confirm that. Mm, looking forward so to it. It's gonna be good. It's gonna be like old times. The three yeah. of us back together. Lovely. Um, really looking forward to that. Mm. And we're also toying with an episode about Disney. Yeah,
1: so a bit more of a general discussion as, um, as we did with our nostalgia episode. We're going to talk a little bit about um, Disney and the kind of subjectivity of the film experience so you know we talked a l- little bit about it in the podcast today but i'm fascinated by the uh the kind of what you know what makes people sit down and watch films mm. and there's like talking about that subject in the context of disney is fascinating because um hannah my wife like absolutely adores it and she's got such uh warm almost uncompromising opinion of them and she just thinks they're brilliant and she Mm. will no matter what i say about disney Mm -hmm. she will really really defend them to the nth degree um so i just think it'll be really interesting to discuss that
0: yeah i mean i don't think there is a company that have gripped the Mm. sort of tastes of so many people our age in our generation yeah certainly yeah and i think it's just a really interesting area we're going to talk about their films sort of reasons for why people are so yeah. um in love with their output yeah. and also their their position in the current landscape and mm. is that dominance that they currently have a problem for yeah. hollywood definitely or for the wider industry look so forward- lots to look forward to yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> for all five of you Lots to look forward to. <laughs> including me and you who have to listen back to it yeah. So. yeah mainly yeah
1: i'll put it on we've got a little work group uh just called podcast lovers and um I will put this podcast on there, so you never know. Fingers Ooh. crossed, might turn into six. <laughs> oh,
0: fantastic! <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, have a lovely weekend. Yes, and we'll be seeing you in the next one. See you soon. Cheers. Bye bye.